And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's The Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of The Rodcast, David Steele. Yes, sir. Larry Babb, that is what I'm talking about. Another fine introduction by our announcer, Larry Babb. Thank you for that. I am your host, David Steele, and you have tuned in to yet another great episode of The Rodcast. This is our part two of a two-part series with legendary automotive journalist and all-around great guy, Dave Wallace Jr. Now, I'm going to go against one of my own rules here just slightly and attach this episode's airing to a specific date and time because I feel we, we have to talk about something that is discussed in this episode that makes its release this week anyway uh, quite timely. And that is the fact that it was announced on December 6th of 2019 that 10 publishing would be eliminating 19 of its automotive print publications. 19. And tons of great magazines, so many that uh, I'm a huge fan of. And among these are Carcraft, uh, Muscle Car Review, and of course, one of my absolute favorites, Hot Rod Deluxe. So... As a former editor of that very magazine, Dave Wallace's insights that you'll hear in this episode having to do with Hot Rod Deluxe and print media in general are particularly poignant. In fact, because this interview was recorded nearly two years ago now, it's almost haunting to hear the sign-off that Dave leaves us with at the end of this episode. But... uh, You'll have to listen all the way through to hear that because I'm not going to spoil it for anyone. That said, it's been an absolute joy to get to listen through to all of the raw audio from this interview with Dave as we edited our way toward what would become these two broadcast episodes. He is without a doubt one of the most enthusiastic hot rod and drag racing folks that I've ever known or have ever been around. I feel like he should be, you know, like on a nationwide tour, you know, just going from grade school to grade school, giving presentations to entire student bodies as to why this stuff is so much fun. You know, why it is a great and colorful pastime, why the community that supports it is second to none, and and why it's important that it survive and that it continues to be part of our culture. I feel like uh, if anybody could do that, if anybody could have great success doing that, it would be Dave Wallace Jr. You know, he could be like the... Uh, He'd be like the Tony Robbins of hot rodding and drag racing. Anyway, all that to say, I'm just so happy to be able to bring you this episode. Dave is a friend. 
He's one of my absolute favorite folks, and getting to share his story with our audience is really a thrill for me. Also, before we get to today's episode, I want to acknowledge another great friend and and someone who's helped with this, well, with the technical side of today's broadcast anyway. Uh, it's just been invaluable, and that is Cole Coons. And as many of you know, if you're into drag racing or drag racing history, Cole is one of our premier historians in this department. And he's been doing incredible work for a few decades now. He's been a contributor to Hot Rod, Carcraft Magazine. He's written for everything from Carcraft's Retro Mag, Elapsed Times, to the LA Times, in fact. He's authored several books. I can't recommend them enough. Just really, really great stuff that just should absolutely be on your shelves if you're a car guy. Infinity Over Zero in particular. And of course, his Top Fuel Wormhole volumes one and two are are just essential. So feel free to pick those up for yourself or a friend or, or both. Oh, and did I mention that Cole's better half is none other than the current Nostalgia Top Fuel champion, Mindy Fry. So I guess you could say, you know, drag racing is is Cole's life in every way. Of course, as you'll hear Dave Wallace explain, most guys who write for the major automotive magazines in this day and age usually have another gig or two that's helping to keep the lights on, and Cole is no different. It's just that Cole's gig may come as a surprise to you, but is the reason he reached out to me with a very friendly you know, like, hey, man, if you ever want me to pass along some tips on making your audio a bit more pro, let me know. I'd be happy to help out, which is incredibly awesome and super generous, especially considering the fact that Cole's day job is handling the audio for shows like Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. And it, this probably makes him slightly overqualified for helping with some audio glitches on a podcast, but you know, there you go. I definitely wasn't going to turn him down, and and I'm glad I didn't. In fact, we'll be going back into the audio files of some of our previous broadcast episodes and kind of punching them up as well, so to speak. So that said, I don't I don't think there's any danger of me, you know, suddenly sounding like Alex Trebek. But, uh, you know, we're going to do what we can. So many thanks to Cole for putting in some time to help make sure that these guests that we so revere have as good a broadcast as possible. And so speaking of, and without any further ado, it is now time to settle in and enjoy this part two of our series of talks with the great Dave Wallace Jr. You know, I, I was there for that. So my advantage is somehow or another, I was connected to, to automotive stuff all through these years. Mm -hmm. Speed shop, you know, whatever was happening, except for the time I was in the service. I have a black hole there for the, you know, 69 to 71. I'm, it's like, it didn't happen for me. I, I'm like everybody else. I read about it in the magazines, but I wasn't here to, I was so close to it. And then I was so far from it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, since you met, uh, mentioned that the service didn't, weren't you driving some, uh, some you know officers around? 
No. At all? We, we, so no. I was thinking you did I, I didn't. We had Jeeps. Most of the stuff was Jeeps. If you were out on patrol, you had an M151A1, you know, Jeep. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, there were very few automobiles. The really big, the really big wigs had uh, like 68, 69 Impalas, four doors over there in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And we had supplied the Vietnamese uh, police, the civilian police guys, with sportsters. So you'd see, a, you'd hear a Harley once in a while instead of wing, 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 you know, with five people on that it. That had you to know, make wing. you feel good when you it, heard well, that Good sound. and bad. And the cool thing was there was one really cool car over there that I have pictures of. It was a, uh, uh, four, they were, it was a two-door. It was real rare. It was a two-door Biscayne or something uh, right around that era, probably a year or two old, 67, 68. And the deal was when the, you painted the olive drab, they have a formula for olive drab. Well, if you sneak black into it, you can make it look black under certain conditions. So the idea was to, I guess, the guys who painted the military cars to the hot rodders, sneak as much black into the mix until somebody said, wait a minute, you know, that's supposed to be green. It's not black until some general saw it or something. There was one really cool car. It was almost black. It was lowered. It had chrome wheels on it with hubcaps, little dog dishes. Wow. This Biscayne or whatever it was, you know, yeah. a, a stripper over there. Otherwise, no. We had Jeeps, and they were stock Jeeps, and the motor pool, we used to hang out in the motor pool at night. Pot's legal now, right? We were, uh, we'd be in the motor pool at night smoking pot because that was the one good thing about Vietnam. They, they, uh, the Vietnamese, where I was, figured the reason all these Americans were so crazy was because they all smoked marijuana. They grew it there like crazy, you know, nice Sensamia stuff. They would trade you straight across a carton of rolled marijuana cigarettes from a cigarette factory for a carton of Pell-Mells or Camels or anything. Straight across. Best pot anybody ever smoked. And I'm not a drinker. I get sick. I'm a lightweight. If I have more than two beers, I'm, you know, ugh. So it was, it was fine. So we'd be in the motor pool at night driving these Jeeps around in, in the dirt. We had like a little, a little oval track set up, you know, oh my where God. you're just in a slide, you know, all the way around. Yeah. And we'd lock the gate, and, and I was the company clerk, so I would take the MPs that came in that didn't want to be MPs like me, but they'd been race car guys, and I'd put them in the motor pool. We had a lot of control that way, like, I don't want an MP. I don't want to be an MP, but I got drafted, and I, they may be an MP. I'm not going to argue about it, but really, I worked on sprint cars before I came into service. Well, you're our guy. How'd you like to work in the motor pool? Great. So all the guys in the motor pool were guys over time that I had placed when they came in, like, what's your interest? You find out who the gearheads are. What do you hang up? If you got Playboy, you know, bunnies hanging up in your locker, that's one thing. If you got a 55 Chevy with Hillborns and no front bumper, you're our man. How about the motor pool? And nobody, ever, <laughs> nobody ever said no. So we do that. That was it at night. And then we had one Jeep, Charlie 40. Uh, C was our company. So the bumper always had the, that, that letter. We had A, B, and C uh, companies in the 716th MP Battalion. Charlie C was us. 40 was our race Jeep. And it was great because it was almost black. And we had this old alcoholic guy who was a total gearhead. And he had shaved the head. And, it was like Wally Parks talks about when he was in the Army, you know, hopping up these Jeeps. Yeah. Look stock. V860. But it was Jeep. brutal, fast, and we'd race for money. So they would, another company would challenge you. Here you are in Vietnam and at night, hooking up a tow bar, towing this thing because of the gearing across through, not through, you know, enemy combat zones, but still you're out at night, you know, and, and it's Vietnam. And uh, setting up a race for money or smokes or something with another company to race their Jeep. No and that was the only automotive fun that I had the whole time I was over there, 435 days. That was it. But That's Charlie Forty was the king. I don't think it ever got beat. The guy had shaved the gears, you know, so it, he could shift it. The speed shifted, yeah. 
this old Jeep, always had the trans apart, file it on the gears so he could, you know, oh shift. My God. It was great. That, that was the only cool thing. Yeah, but that that's, a, that's almost miraculous that that could have even happened over there. You know, Hot Rod That's came. Amazing. Hot Rod came to the PX, and my dad and I were not on good terms. He never sent me one newspaper. Never. He never wrote me a letter till the week before I came home. The whole time I was over there, so I was pretty much in a black hole for automotive stuff, except for Hot Rod. And the second month, Barry Kaplan is a guy. I don't know if you ever heard his name, but he was a Dry Lakes racer car in Kaplan. I think they were yep. the first ones to go 200 in the dirt at El Mirage with a, an old dragster. The second month, the first month I was there, I guess, was November of '69, and. God, you're homesick and you're miserable and everything's horrible, you know. And uh, I go to the PX uh, looking for a magazine. Here, here's Hot Rod. And Barry Kaplan with no shirt standing on the cover of Hot Rod is looking right at me. My first month there, I think it was the November issue of 69 at Bonneville, standing by the starting line with no shirt on. And he's looking right at me. He's a family friend. And it was like, <laughs> oh, you know, man. so what was there made yeah. me, it was almost worse than not seeing it. Gotcha. You know, not yeah, yeah. It without any chance to experience any of that, except for Charlie Forty, you know? Wow, yeah. well, thank God for Charlie Forty. Charlie Forty kind of <laughs> kept us sane, you know? Um, so going back, um, just for, the, for people, you know, there will be plenty of guys listening to this who they only know pictures and kind of made up movies of the drag racing you saw when you were a kid. What can you say about that, about being there and standing there at that starting line and, and the way those cars looked and sounded and who those guys were? And Man. I mean, yeah. is it too much of a picture to ask no, the face? No, or? no, and it's something I've, you know, I've talked about a lot because, of course, in the moment, you just think it's all going to get better. Maybe it'll be on TV someday. What could go wrong? You, know, you don't think about the sponsors and the politics and all yeah. that. You just think, why doesn't everybody see that? Well, if anybody who is exposed to this, I went to Catholic school all week. I was raised by strict, pretty much Italian standards. I was the kid that had to be home before everybody else. You know, they were always worried. My mom wouldn't let me take any shop classes. Your, your grandfather came here from Italy and he worked at a factory. He was always dirty. It was a, a really hard job. And... Uh, I don't, we don't want that for you. We don't, so you're going to Catholic school, there's no shop classes, and you're not allowed to take shop classes in summer school or anything. They did not want their kids' hands to be dirty. My mom wanted a dentist, a doctor, and my sister probably to get married and have a bunch of kids. So you're in, to put this in perspective, you're wearing those cord, damn corduroy pants at, at all week with your, with your blue Our Lady of Peace shirt on uh, during the week. On Sundays, you're exposed to this incredible children lock the doors and roll up the windows, world of, of juvenile delinquents. You know, the bad boys, these are the you know, open headers we had from 12.30 to 3.30. It was probably the first noise curfew in drag racing. It was a voluntary thing because there was a church across the street yeah. and they used to complain. So you're, you're, those guys all look bad. They had you know, waterfall hair. They didn't get their hair cut like they were supposed to. They had cigarettes in their sleeves. The chicks were, you know, racy and gorgeous and said dirty words. It was like all week at Catholic wow. school. <laughs> on Saturday, I'd work at home so I could be loose on Sunday pretty much, you know. And you're exposed to this. And all these people were, the youngest guys were 10 years older than I was pretty much. You know, when I was 11 and there all the time, they were probably 21, most of them. Mm -hmm. They were rotating the earth. Tommy Ivo and Perdome and Dave Zuschel. They were kids themselves, but they were setting the world on fire in a motorsport that either they invented it or their previous generation. But I was like 
the second generation of drag racing. Let's say it got organized in 50 at Santa Ana. Mm -hmm. I was there in 61. So I wasn't the first, you know, the first wave, but I was right there in the second wave. But you went earlier than that. Well, 60, 60, 61 was probably where my mom started letting me go when I was 10 or 11. Okay. But it was, uh, it was as different a world as there could be from yeah. my real life. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing. Yeah, it, it must really have, was. Yeah, it must have seemed like the weekend was Ugh. another universe that it you was. entered. And I had to work. From it your, was, yeah. I had to work, and it might have been a 24-hour day for 20 bucks. It was so cool. And we were sure this was going to catch on and be bigger than NFL, you know, bigger than baseball, because it was just so exciting. Yeah. And it really was. There was no predictability. Anybody could win. One week, it'd be two Pontiacs injected on fuel that was winning. The next week, it would be, you know, F-85 Oldsmobiles. Aluminum F-85 Oldsmobiles, it, would, it, would, uh, it was just so, every week it was different. Who was going to show up, you know, it was exciting. It was yeah. noisy. At 12.30, you couldn't open headers till 12.30. It was the only track like that. So in the morning, the stockers would run, maybe modified production gas cars, corked up. At 12.30, everybody in the place, you couldn't hear the announcer or anything for a couple of minutes and the first fuel cars were pushed out right at 12 30. it was like wow. it, it was intense it had three hours like that and it wasn't like oil down an oil down meant you put down some rice hull ash you run stockers down the track till they start stop doing this mm. and then you fire the next pair of fuel cars or top gas or comp type stuff so it wasn't like today, oh, we got to clean the track and we're going to have commercials and this and that. It was just nonstop action because we had three hours to run a show. Uh, to, to open top fuel qualifying eliminations, open top gas qualifying eliminations, open little eliminator, which is like comp, and all the uncork classes, gassers, modifieds, all that, all in three hours. It was like a, an amazing TV show. My God. People say drag racing never caught on on TV because you couldn't do it in three hours. Well, Harry Hibbler would tell you we had a three-hour TV show. You don't let the racers set the timetable. Yeah. You know, you don't let the racers set the timetable. You do it with, uh, you know, you, you have this show. So it, it was a completely different, uh, just as different as could be from my real life. Monday, the next day you're back with the nuns or whatever, you know, whatever yeah. you're doing. I went to Catholic high school for three years, which, too. Which would, make, which would make that weekend even that much more powerful to be framed it was by that week that uh, you're having where it's almost a, mili exactly. a military-type existence. And my mom had big lists of chores to keep you out of trouble. You know, I mean, there was no freedom at all. And then on Sunday, even though my dad was there and I wasn't particularly close to him, we were pretty much on our own, you know, at, at the drag strip. It was, it was exciting for a lot of reasons. Like when I, uh, before I even started driving, it'd be like I had a girlfriend when I was probably 15, She'd come out to races with me. Well, I, my dad would let me drive the 52 Chevy, you know, down the other end, and we'd go park, you know, that, like, like the big kids. And people would <laughs> be doing anything you can think of uh, uh, overlooking the drag strip at San Fernando. It was cut down in the groove, so you'd be up on top watching. And you could, my brother would sell papers, and he'd look in and knock on the door, make them spend a quarter just to get rid of them. People are having sex at the drag strip on a Sunday afternoon because they're God. kids, you know, they don't yeah. have apartments. You didn't live together then, you know, yeah. unless you were married. Yeah. It was crazy for all those reasons. It was, it was like one of those hot rod movies, but better. <laughs> it really was. It was so cool. Really, uh, it was an amazing experience. And, and it hooked me, you know, for, uh, for life, really. Oh, my God, how could it not? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's really like starting with heroin or something. It, it, was, it was so good. It really and was. And no the fuel cars, back. you know, it was, there were so many fuel cars in Southern California. It wasn't like a lot of places like in the East where me, you get a couple cars. There was always qualifying, serious qualifying. 
to get an eight car show. An eight car, it was Tony Nancy and George Boltoff and Tommy Ivo and once in a while Perdome. These were hitter guys, they were young guys doing amazing things. And I also learned I wasn't ever gonna be a mechanic because you watch these guys who were just a little bit older than me and they, they weren't rebuilding motors between rounds then, but the stuff they were doing was, I just knew it was so far beyond. Like, I'll drive them and, and take care of the women. Somebody else could have to work on them. This is way <laughs> beyond my capability. So I had, to, that was part of it too, was finding something you could do to be involved. And I could write. I didn't have the mechanical skills. I certainly didn't have any money, but that was my, niche not just to belong or anything but i wanted to be around it but like i'm curious a curious person so i want to know what broke i hate a story that says he broke he didn't come back for the next round why not, why not? you know what happened what, what look at the think of the range of things that could have happened so i'd walk up i was a dumb kid with my clipboard when i was 14 writing stories and i remember walking up to ed pink once somebody you know shit the bottom end out the starting line and I walked up there like a dumb kid, and he's sitting there looking at this thing on the ground, whatever's left, and I'm not thinking this is his mortgage payment or, you know what I mean? And it's like, what do you think happened, Ned? You know, and, and if I was any older, I think they would have, they, maybe they would have slapped me or punched me, but they, they couldn't help. But, and I've heard that since then. You look, you were just a little skinny kid, you know, yeah. with a clip, big clipboard. What happened? They'd tell you, and I was curious, did the fuel pump shaft break? You know, what happened? What do you think happened? And usually they'd know right there on the spot. Yeah. And I didn't have the sense to, to even back off, but I'd put that in the story. Yeah. You know, Ed Pink couldn't come back because they leaned out, they had a, you know, a bad cylinder, or the barrel valve was wrong. I wanted to know that stuff. So, because as a reader, I was curious about it. Yeah. So I always tried to give the reader, like my thing has always been, answer the question. Don't leave more questions in the story unanswered tell the people what they're going to want to know because i'm a reader too that's how i started out like don't leave people without full information and it's cost me hours and days of weeks of my life to track something down sometimes i just want to i don't want to leave that hanging that's my own sense of pride and f even if two people are reading it mm -hmm. you know no, I, I i get that well that's why you've been able to do this i guess so you know try to make it as good as you can there's never enough time because of deadlines. It isn't like the web where you, these guys, I tell them, uh, they put stuff up now, somebody calls them on an error, they just fix it. There's no record of it even being there. I'm stuck with my typos and my mistakes forever. Yeah. It's like they might as well be chiseled in stone when I go through those binders. Today, oh yeah, no big deal. We'll just put up whatever we put up to make the deadline and then we'll fix it later. That's the attitude. Yeah. I, I wish I would have had that luxury, but I never have. Well, know? and you could, you could say a similar thing about digital versus film, and the, the luxury that that provides. Mm -hmm. Just looking in your viewfinder and going, oh, no, 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 but you've taken 18 right. shots in three seconds. Yeah, we didn't have motor drives, and none of that. Yeah. You, could, you, you got one shot, that's why Eric Rickman from Hot Rod, they called him One Shot Rick, you know. He'd go, he'd drive to San Diego, they said from Peterson, to shoot something Crower was doing. He'd take one picture and put his camera away. They go, aren't you gonna take two? Nope. Uh, it's just one shot, then he'd go do the next thing. And on a roll of, that's why when you go through the archives, a roll of 12 might have three or four really significant things on it. 
you know, and, and until you look at the film, you don't really know what's on there. The guy who turned in the role might have written Crower on the role. Well, here's the Mysterian, two shots of Roth doing something. And here's Tommy Ivo's, you know, four-engine car being built over here on one frame. But they, they, they just, ah, Crower, that's what they remember. They went to San Diego. You don't know until you look, and that's what the archivist's job is, is to create a metadata tag for every single frame. And there's eight and a half million images just in the Peterson archive. Every one of those by rights has to have a metadata tag, has to have an, and Thomas Foringer, the, art, the archivist here, has to, has to look at every single frame mm -hmm. and identify it. We never had that before. You just had a role that said Crower, and until you went and looked at it through a loop, you didn't realize Big Daddy Roth was there and that, you know. So, I mean, you are making a point of saying Tony Nancy, Tommy Ivo, Don Prudhomme, Dick Landy, you know, you've mentioned all these, every single name is iconic. But when you were a young guy, these were the local guys. They were, they were They valley. were all just, they were valley this was guys. you going to the local track and these are the local drag racers. And let me tell you, for a guy from back east like me, that seems almost impossible. The, the, it, it, just, it just seems like the craziest fantasy well, ever. The only thing was that, uh, that when you get there on Sunday, they had to set the whole track up because the vandals would tear everything up and steal shit if you didn't. So like you couldn't leave the speakers up. They had to take them down, lock them up somewhere. The trophy room was all boarded up with, you know, uh, hanging doors, panels like plywood panels because it was, the track was just sitting there six days a week. Even though the gate was locked, anybody could come to San Fernando. That kind of remote. surprises me. Uh, in no, it was, it was brutal. Age. It was brutal. It was, uh, Everything was, 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 all the buildings, Harry built most of the buildings, the snack bar, everything was double padlocked, locked down, because anything you left out there would be gone when you came back the next week. And sometimes they broke in and got that stuff too. So, but the, uh, it, while they were setting up in the morning, usually we'd get there after mass, we would, the guy, Jim Scott, was the announcer, same Jimmy Scott that was a world champion in alcohol dragsters, he's still around, runs nostalgia stuff. He would talk about what happened at Lions the night before, or Fontana, or San Gabriel, or something. And, and that was the big time. We felt like we were just a little podunk track. And even though we'd get a Landy or those guys on their way up, kind of, they had the McEwen and, you know, the real hitters, the Kara Mercedes didn't run San Fernando. Anybody that was on tour, Garlitz never came there. You know, th that was the big show. So we felt like we just were the, they, like, they called it the Frog Pond. And my understanding of it, even though you heard different things, was Lions was the beach on Saturday night. San Fernando was the pond. And it was a scale ah, thing. And I see. I've heard a lot of different explanations, but that's the one I remember at the time was that because they called Lions the beach and a lot of guys ran Saturday night, the Northern California guys would come like Wasco. They would come run Saturday night and on Sunday on their way north, going home again, they'd stop in San Fernando, maybe pick up 250 bucks to win top fuel, 100 bucks top gas, little eliminator was a case of oil. And th they would stop and do that. I remember Tom Job with the surfers has said on record that Roberto Skinner, Bob Skinner, his partner, had everything figured to the nickel. And they decided they could run San Fernando as long as they had a chance to make 6250 a run that if they had to make one qualifying run and they had to go three rounds to win the eight car show, $250 they would break even. But their deal was they would not run anywhere where they didn't have a chance to at least break even if they mm -hmm. won. Mm -hmm. And he, Tom said that one of the saddest days of his life was when Bob Skinner came to him with his slide rule or whatever and said, 
it's costed us more than 62.50 a run. We can't run San Fernando anymore because the costs had exceeded the $250 purse. Yeah. But that yeah. track was set up as a community service. It was never supposed to be a top fuel type track. Mm -hmm. It just turned out that way. And I used to say, if you, if you could have put yourself, you couldn't have put yourself in a better place than the San Fernando Valley for a car guy. I was just a kid. I didn't know I was a car guy yet, even though my parents said that, you know, some of my first words were Chevy, Ford, Dodge, like all of us, like everybody who sees this probably was that kid driving their parents crazy. Do you know you can get a 355 rear end posse with that thing? Like some squeaky little kid calling out dealer <laughs> options, riding your bike down to the Chevy dealer, waiting for the new Corvettes to come after watching Route 66, you know. So, so I was like into cars, but I, I didn't really you know what was going on. But, but you, I don't know, we were just, uh, it, it couldn't have been a better, uh, a better place because th this was a community service thing that just attracted these guys because they were local. They would test there. Harry Hibbler said there were hay bales along the left side of the track, no guardrail on the right. A lot of guys liked like coming there to test because A, you don't have the whole world watching you. Ralph Goodall wasn't watching you at Lions if you made an ass out of yourself. You're just at San Fernando. And in the smoke, you could see the hay bales to know you were going straight. Other tracks had nothing to, to guide by. There's a blower in front of you, an injector, and everything's smoking. No, you know, weed burners, no, no zoomies to clean out the smoke. At least you had that when you were learning to drive or testing something. You had that that row of hay bales. That was the kind of thing. People would come out there to kind of test and maybe not be noticed. I have a Ralph Goodall story for you that I better tell you before I forget. About, uh, I don't know, a, I guess a year and a half ago, Don and I were at, Don Prieto has a taco party every year. We were there and I, I, he had some old magazines and I'm like the sucker. I can't stand to see a magazine thrown away. That's why I have about 40,000 of them, most of them worthless in my loft. He says, I got some old magazines here I'm going to get rid of. You want them when you come down? I'll take, I'll take them. Don't throw them away. I'll throw them away if you don't take them. Okay, I'll take them, whatever they are. So Don and I are loading up magazines in a van or whatever. And uh, Rod McCarroll, who was a junior fuel racer at, at Lions, he and I are, he's helping me. We're moving boxes. And he goes, you know what I got? He goes, uh, what, you know, Prieto was Ralph Goodall's best friend. As he was dying, he, he died a long kind of slow death, and Prieto was his pal and took care of him. He goes, uh, after he died, uh, Prieto gave me Ralph's typewriter. He never used a computer. He ran Edelbrock's museum late in his life. And he gave me a Smith Corona typewriter. It's really bitching. Looks like it's brand new. And I'm like, oh, Ralph Goodall's typewriter. Oh, man. So I didn't want to say anything. You know, like, like he's happy he has it and everything. About a month ago, he and I had an email thing about something. I go, hey, I said, you're about my age, Rod. If you check out before I do, can I buy the Ralph's typewriter? And this has been on my mind, Smith Corona, for a couple a year and a half or so. I said, can I buy that or from your heirs or something? If you happen to check out before me, you know, it could be either way. He writes you back and goes, this would mean a lot more to you. He says, why don't you come get it? I'm in Corona. So Friday, the day after tomorrow, on the way to Escondido, we're going to stop at Rod McCarroll's house and, and collect Ralph Goodall's typewriter. All those stories that blew me away were pretty much on this old manual typewriter that he used till the end of his life. Wow. So I'll have that on, on Friday, I hope. That's really great. It is cool. And oh, it, man. It'd be like getting a piece you know, of a car or something that meant a lot to you, but even more so, you know? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, that, that cool? Yeah. It, like you say, you think of what passed through that. Oh, my God. Maybe I'll get a little bit. You know, like they say, Bob, if you sit on, Tom Russell, folk artist, said that when he went to Dave Von Ronk's couch, he was feeling around in the back in case Dylan left any songs there. Because he said, <laughs> he said all, all song ideas, 
default to Bob Dylan, so maybe I could find one back here in the cushions. That's kind of how I felt. Maybe, maybe I'll get a, a little inspiration to keep me going, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but there were, you know, there were, at that time, there were uh, three or four drag weeklies all the time to sell stuff to. Uh, many, many magazines, even besides the Peterson magazines. There was just so many markets for stuff all over. Everybody was hungry for material. So and when you say back then, what do you... I'd say the peak of it was probably 64, 5, 6. Mm -hmm. Everything was going. There was, and there was no other media. It was pretty much print. Magazines yeah. and newspaper papers were it. Yeah. Then as TV came in and all the rest of it, it just, it just you know, uh, cut, cut that apart. Now here we are. We're kind of hanging on with, with Hot Rod Deluxe and mm -hmm. Muscle Car Review and, and really some of the Peterson books. But basically, it's a fraction of what was there before. So you, you wonder how long that can go. I hope I hope I you know it outlives me. I hope I hope there's still some place to sell stuff. You know. Oh man, yeah, I hope so. At this I, stage of my life, I thought I'd be cruising, but instead it's like, gee, we're we're getting paid what, what I paid guys in the '80s when I was the editor of Drag Racing oh, Magazine. Oh man, and nothing Yikes. nothing costs the same. So unless you have a really good, you know, low overhead and a wife with health insurance. You're, you can't you can't make a living in this business. It's it's pretty impossible. Very few staff jobs. The editors are expected to pretty much do the whole thing themselves, and a lot of them are contract editors, like I, I've been. You know where there's no benefits. You know you pay your own taxes, take care of your own expenses. Tough deal. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I you know I like to think that going forward, car guys will want to maintain the tradition of holding the information in their hand physically. I, I want to believe that, but I think there's two things. Who knows? I know? think a guy in his 40s is probably the last that grew up with paper where it was, you know, it was always there. It was paper. So you had that tactile experience. Yeah. And my thing is that fake news could be the salvation of this. It's that somebody is vetting it. If you go spend eight bucks for a magazine, it's with the assumption that somebody is, is Checking yeah. it for accuracy and all. Yeah. Well, you don't get that online. Maybe you'll find a trusted source online. But if you're just out there winging it, looking for drag racing news, the trouble is there's only so many hours in the day to, for entertainment or recreational reading. Plenty of free stuff online that would take up all that time. Yeah. So I think a lot of people are like, why would I spend eight bucks when I can't watch Roadkill enough or I can't, I can't catch up on my Roadkill episodes? You know what I mean? There's only so much time and people are working two jobs and all that. So the vetting of the information with a trusted editor, and that's where mm. you hope that the, that the publishers don't just go with the cheapest guy and you lose that, because then what do you have? You've got mistakes here, or you can go online and have mistakes. I, I think that's what, hopefully, what separates the print what's left from that. And the fake news, the worse it gets and the more the Russians you know, do or whatever else. <laughs> to me, it places more value on those things that you can oh, hold absolutely. in your hand. That yeah. This thing wouldn't sell if it, if it was full of mistakes. It isn't free. Somebody has to produce this and print it and ship it by train and truck and go through all this stuff. Yeah. So as long as that's worth seven or eight bucks to somebody, maybe we can hang on. Yeah, hopefully it'll always feel like a different and separate thing from online. And it may be information. It may be like the Rotter's Journal model, like I've told Steve Coonan, that might be the future the model. Uh, you know, a boutique publication. Maybe not yeah. every month, fifteen bucks or more. 
Yeah. You know, it's not going to be fresh news or whatever, but it'll be a nice package that people who value it will find the money to spend. Yeah. But again, people are aging out. I imagine I'm, I think I'm one of the youngest readers of Deluxe from the letters I get. I'm an, I'm like an early baby boomer. Most of the letters I got at Deluxe, Hot Red Deluxe, were from got people older than me. They were either older baby boomers or beyond. So the wow. people, at least the people who still write letters and want to communicate, and that's pretty scary. We have we always thought the baby boom will just take care of everything. There's so yeah. many of us. Yeah, it doesn't matter what. If we have an interest, there's going to be there's going to be people buying it. But we're aging out, you know. Ooh, wow. The youngest baby boomers are in their seventies. Well, you know what? Uh, that the actually oldest, I'm sorry. not to change the subject, but that actually. Uh, brings me to another question I've had on my mind because you had mentioned something about this a, a long time ago to me about what it was like for you and I don't know exactly what the era was but there was a time when you entered the magazine business and there was this kind of uh, generational divide there was the old the old crew right and these kind of long-haired right drag racer oriented good point kind of folks were coming in tell me about that that specifically but also was did that did you see that happening at the track at the drags in the 60s kind of seeing the young culture come into the sport and kind of freaking out the the 50s the original 50s hot rod based yeah drag racer those damn funny cars <laughs> Really? Oh, big change. I remember uh, uh, we didn't like funny cars. I mean, th there's still a lot of people. Like, uh, they won't buy a magazine if it's a tube frame car. They'll put up with an altered wheelbase production car. The first, you know, the, the early stage, 65, yeah. uh, 67 or so. By the time they went to the Comet flip tops and all that, they weren't cars anymore. There was really a divide in the PDA meets. That was the PDA meet was an all dragster meet in '67, and the only reason for it was to prove that you could still bring a crowd to a drag strip without these circus acts. They called them. Lions would play calliope music, circus music, when they brought them out. I mean, like to mock them? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Nobody wow. thought. Everybody thought it was just going to be like a wheel stand or something. Nobody ever figured this thing would last. It was just to show. Crispin's Comet would smoke the tires, but it wouldn't really beat anybody. It was a, a mid 10 second car, but it was a stock. You know, that was a revolutionary car. Maybe more so than any other single car. It had a blown fuel Ford in it, a top fuel motor, Jack Crispin, high gear only, set up for smoke, yeah. not for ET. It would smoke the tire. Nobody ever saying like that. You never saw a, a, a door slammer make smoke. They might go, R -r -r, but not smoke. And this was yeah. barrels of smoke with a yeah. face mask and, you know, oh. but we all hate the hardcore guys hated that because the dragsters were the thing. They, they, a dragster was, was unlimited then. Do what you want. Put the motor anywhere you wanted, however many motors you want. The idea was to get down the track as lightly and all that as you could. And Funny you, cars were a show. It was a show thing. It was you looked not, at it like it was theater? Yeah, very much so. And that's what it was like. The, the, the early guys, they were serious about it. But what happened was every guy with a stalker or a super stalker could all of a sudden be booked in as a match race pro. Everybody. There were thousands of those guys, I'll bet. They all put a blower on. After 64, 65, Arnie Beswick was a super stock racer. He was tired of racing for $3 trophies. 
He put a blower on his Pontiac, a four-hole Hillborn, still running gas, and all of a sudden he's getting paid $1,000. Same thing Garlitz was, just to show up. Wow. There was a huge divide there, and I think it... So that wasn't so much generational or cultural. That was more just guys opportunists, right. would you say? Yeah, well, it, it was just a natural... Or was out it a little bit of both? I think it was a natural outgrowth of guys with stock-bodied cars, what we used to call stockers, wanting to go faster, too. And then you find out that you could be paid and, and do a three-round match race. Because up till then, it was trophies. That was it, cheap trophies. Mm. So that changed, but also the fan adulation, all the stuff that went with that. And I think it was that more than anything. And then, then when the, the funny cars really got uh, tube frames and stuff, that a lot of people just didn't want to follow that. There was a real divide. I remember being at Fremont, Northern California, so at San Francisco, and seeing long-haired people for the first time, really, uh, you know, uh, drag fans. I didn't think that crossed over. The Beatles ruined it. It was fine until the Beatles came along. That, a lot of people really, to this day, believe that. You'll, they'll tell you with a straight face. It was fine with the Beach Boys and all that. Fucking Beatles came in, that long hair, a bunch of, you know, this, and smoking dope and protesting. All that, that cultural stuff was going on. Mm -hmm. Didn't really see it too much at the drags. But then I remember at Fremont, the, like Jungle Jim, you know, that kind of stuff. He had a whole different appeal to people that were freaks. And you started to see that come into it. Most yeah. of them weren't gearheads, but, but it brought in people for the show and stuff. And you started to smell marijuana in the stands and stuff like that, but not until really late, you know, probably 67, 68, where you started to see that sort of thing going on. The, yeah. the burnout girls, you know, Jungle Pam, all that stuff. Yeah. But it really, yeah. for a long time, it just grew the whole thing. It just grew it. You had the old people, and then you had these new people who were attracted to the muscle cars, which were new. Or, and or to the funny car type stuff. It, was a, it, was, it added to it. That's when it got huge. I'd say probably early 70s. I think Vietnam had a lot to do with, with stopping the popularity because they, there was two and a half million guys, roughly, people served in Vietnam. And for every person in a combat zone, you have two support people somewhere else. So if the two and a half million people that were average age 19 were in Vietnam during the whole crisis, that means there were five million that were drafted, probably were in service. So you take that many young blue collar guys, because that's what it was, yeah. we, that's the gearheads that weren't going to college, yep. out of the market. And I could say for myself, even though I didn't have that horrible combat experience and all that, it took me a couple of years to drift back into cars in a serious way. I just, basically, you just wanted things to be quiet, predictable. Yeah. Girls, all the stuff that, you know, you didn't have. You're only 19 when you go. Yeah. You know, right at the peak of your powers or whatever. And, and then you come back and you're just everybody else is, that's been home for two years, you know, is ahead of you in every way. And it just takes a while. And most people don't get back to it. I, I think they didn't get back to Chevelle's and, and, you know, hot rods and stuff. It took a lot of people. Not only did they kill a lot of people and maim a lot of people, but it just it just changed. You grew up, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I always thought the guys after World War II or the guys that missed the war, there was nothing after from 45 on really to stop you. You got into cars and you, your car got faster. Maybe you went into business, you know, in the industry like I did with the speed shops and stuff. There was nothing to interrupt it. Well, Vietnam took everybody out of the picture for a, a long span, you think from 63 or four all the way to 73, 10 years of, of pulling all the young blue collar guys just when they were starting to make money at the factory at GM or something. You're just starting to live their lives and you're, you're gone. And yeah. 
you don't have a fast car and you find out you can live without that. I, I never would have ever got out of that, I don't think. If, if, if the Roadrunner would have led to, my 383 Roadrunner would have led to a 440 or a 426 and you know, th that would have progressed, but it didn't, it just stopped. I got out and I bought a Datsun pickup. You know, what are you doing with a Datsun, a four cylinder car? Wow, yeah. You know, I wouldn't have been seen in something like that. Had Craigers, but still. You know. <laughs> Four bolt Craigers. Had a lot to do with it. The people don't understand that. Yeah, when yeah. They it was insurance. Yeah. There was insurance. Part of it was, too, the guys weren't there to buy the cars. There was no movement to, to fight the insurance companies or the le legislators yeah. because, yeah. first of all, you're young and you don't have any power. And also, they took all these guys out of the system, and we had other things to fight about. You know, fighting about your, in your insurance seems like a pretty small thing after you've yeah. been to a war zone. You know? yeah. yeah. So that had a big impact, too, I think, on yeah. it. But culturally, but right there when they all merged together, it was really, really happening there. I, th I think, uh, you know, if you look 70, 71, the stands were full. They were adding races. It was it was pretty peak time, I think. You know, there were a lot of reasons for it that it that it kind of you know settled down. Didn't keep growing, I guess. And like I say, you had also said something to me about maybe a more pointed example of that kind of generational cultural chasm or whatever when you started writing for the magazines. Oh yeah. And these kind of skinny tied, right? You know, guys. You know, huge who, difference. You know, you had a guy like DeLivo who went to work every day dressed to the nines. Right, like, right. man, he was... That was expected. Neat as a pin and going to work and right. immaculate and professional. And then you've got younger guys right. coming in who don't have that attitude at all. Right. And anyway, you've said... So it, was, it was really evident in the publishing business, I think. Uh, Peterson himself was the big game hunter and all that stuff. And, and they had guns and ammo. That was his hobby. Those guys were madmen guys. They even in the 70s they had bars bars in their offices. They had some of them had secretaries that didn't know how to type. Mm. It, you know, it was that whole that that thing lasted a long time in the in the automotive world. To this day, it's more conservative than most things. Mm. But the publishing for sure. Those guys in the 40s and 50s, they were they were into guns and the war wars were good and America first and all that. And then I think they, they were real late to change if you look at the pictures in the magazines. They, they didn't, in 63 or 4 when the Beatles started growing their hair or whatever, they didn't hire those guys. They, were, oh, yeah. they would yeah. not hire those guys, I think, until it got to the point around 69, 70 when there wasn't anybody to hire that didn't have long hair who wanted to wear t-shirts or whatever. And there was a huge divide at Peterson. And I didn't get there till 77 and it was frosty and I didn't know why. It was, there was a frostiness. I wasn't, you know, totally radical out, but I had hair and a beard. None yeah. of those guys would have ever missed a week without a haircut, I don't think. You know, they were all, that was what was expected, and that was what Mr. Peterson, the example he led. He was a big game hunter. He was a traditional guy. You know, that was what they wanted. Then I think it got to the point, especially by the early 70s, where they, you couldn't find anybody to hire that didn't, you know, that didn't look like a freak at the time. Yeah. You know, and, and the vans, all that stuff, the vans brought in all these hippies that maybe had never been gearheads. The van ends were like orgies. Mm. And Terry Cook was the editor that he, you know, he really brought the vans into Hot Rod. A lot of interesting. People, a lot of people, I had never really thought of that. Yeah, that's a lot of people think that's that's what you know killed it. A lot of the van thing. But yeah. when you looked at it, you had all the old guys, and then you had this whole new group of people, and they were modifying their vans. And some of them were into performance, but mostly it was shag carpet and fountains and. The, all the hardcore yeah. guys, including me, really resented those people. That was not us, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So there was a huge divide there, but the magazine went crazy. 
they went over a million circulation because wow. of the vans. Wow. And the van ins, you know, Hot Rod was involved with the truck ins and all that stuff. And they get 5,000 vans full of hairy looking people that look nothing like the guys that we all had looked at at the drag strip. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's real interesting how all that happened. But in the publishing business, it really did stay that way. Even in the late 70s when I went, hmm. you go in the photo lab and you get these little smirks and, you know, it, it, they were just weren't warm. Rickman, I never, Rickman didn't let me into his good graces until close to the end of his life. And it was mostly because I was giving him attention. Nobody else was. Yeah. We could name some others so you know, but I won't because they're still alive. Yeah. But there were, definitely was that divide in the publishing business. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. But there were, it seems to be with those guys that are still around, there's a sense of we're all in it together now. Because... We kind of have to be, yeah, and to, to keep this going. Well, that's what it is. Keep I it think. honest, right? They'll it. put up with you now because <clears throat> you're honoring them and somebody remembers them. And yeah. At that time, they were on top of the world. Again, there was no other media. Especially Peterson owned all media. It'd be like today if you owned all internet, all podcasts, all cable, all network TV, all radio, all print. They owned everything except drag news. Everything that was influential except drag news. That's why Wally hated drag news so much because he had had Peterson in his pocket and they always did things a certain way. And drag news was always in there as little as it was, you know, calling people out on things. The tabloid press, that, that era there in the mid-60s yeah. particularly, they, they were used to controlling everything. If they'd show up at Indy, and I saw this myself, no passes. They would make no effort sometimes. They'd come in and start and demand Good photo passes where all the races running, you know, like in the midst of all the, when I was in Orange County, these guys from Peterson would show up and expect you to, in the middle of a race, the PR guys running around doing God knows what, to go accommodate them and get them all the passes they wanted for all their girlfriends and everybody else because they were Peterson. They, they, at the races, they had golf carts, and they never got dirty, you know, gold chains and stuff. Really, uh, it, it was an you know, just an old, an old way of doing things, and yeah. it, it still existed that way, uh, you know, well into the, I'd say, into the 80s, before TV, people started putting the shows on TV, and the media started to fragment. Uh -huh. They controlled it. They had yeah. all the power, and they acted like it. You know, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. That mm. was a great example of that. Wow. If you wanted to... You know, we went into the SEMA show thing we talked about where Peterson basically, Peterson's people took the SEMA show away from the guy that started the trade show deal was Noel Carpenter. They had a meeting and first they had the, the 30 guys in SEMA that owned the thing or whatever and 63, all the companies, they, they had their pitch and Noel Carpenter came in and said, hey, I started this speed and custom directory. I've made all you guys wealthy. I think you should stick with me, my trade show. And they all went, yeah, right on. He left. The Peterson guys came in and said, if you ever want to have your products in any of the magazines again, you need to go with us. And everybody supposedly except Isky voted, voted to go that way. Wow. That's how much power they had. Wow. Your, your survival of your company depended on ink from those guys. Not, wow. just, not just whether you're going to make more money or not, but actual yeah. survival, I'd say, came down to playing ball with them. Wow. Well, okay, one last thing, because I'd, I'd love to hear your take as somebody who was not there in the day in the 50s, but certainly there in the late 50s, through the 60s, and all the way up. Um, both the nostalgia drag racing movement, nostalgia drag meets, uh, Hot Rod Reunion, all that stuff. Uh, that and the thing that kind of started almost literally in Burbank in the early 90s with young guys building World War II era 
hot rods again. Um, what does that mean to you? What did that mean to you at the time? Those two things, I know they're kind of separate, but what, maybe we should just talk about like kind of the nostalgia racing thing. And It saved it for me interest-wise. <clears throat> I don't know that I would even go to the drags anymore. You know, uh, I remember I went to every Indy Nationals from 75 to 05, uh, 31 years in a row. I couldn't imagine missing Indy. And I, in 05, I was sitting there, and I, I didn't know what I was there for anymore. I just felt like the t TV's getting all the good passes. They don't care about print. They kind of treat you as like second-class citizens. If you're anything video, you know, you were you were treated well. Uh, they had reserved seats. I couldn't sit with my friends anymore. You know, all that had changed into big business. And the nostalgia thing is quarter mile. They don't, they don't limit the fuel to 89% or any of that. There's some limitations, but not much. It's not just because the cars have the engine in the front. It was more the, nobody's going to make any money doing this. And you get, people forget that we've had nostalgia fuel racing out here since 81. Yeah. That is a 36-year sport already. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's there is all those people used to be national event, AHRA, NHRA, IHRA kind of guys, almost all of them. So that gave everybody an alternative, not just to get back to the old days and play with flatheads or whatever, but to, to race a fuel car or some other car without the sponsors, without the crap that you get from a national event, without the tech. You know, your car's got to be safe, run with your brown kind of. To me, that's a wonderful thing. And that's where you see young people. I had a guy come out here from Georgia about 10 years ago to the reunion, and he goes, you know what's interesting? There's a lot of really young guys here, and there's a lot of really old guys here. Mm, but yeah. there's not a lot of guys of our in the middle here. Yeah. So it, 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 did, it added to the whole thing, I think. It, it, to me, it's an alternative to the big show. And I think it, it allows you to have a place to play where it's not all stress. It's not all business or sponsorships. You know, Even the guys that win, Top Fuel, Funny Car, NHRA, one of the big shows, they don't. They don't seem happy anymore. They're, there's so much pressure. Uh, Ed McCulloch told me at Andy's picnic a couple weeks ago, the expectation from the sponsors is you're going to win every race. He goes, now we all know that's totally unrealistic. They don't accept that. Even if you win, there, there's just a momentary release of pressure, and the next day off and at the track on Monday, you have to test. Then you, get, you put your shit in the box, and you're working on the car in the trailer, driving to the next place, maybe. Oh that, that, there isn't that you know, that, hey, I want a trophy. And yeah. nostalgia racing is more like that, I think. Yeah. And I like the atmosphere, the, the car show thing. No trailers, no, no judging, really. Yeah. No, no points. Nobody's worried about whether all of your bolts line up exactly the same, you know. So I think it's a whole different thing. And I, it's much more accessible for a kid for 15 or $20. He can come in there at 7 in the morning and stay till midnight sometimes. That's yeah. a, for a gearhead, man, that's a lot of entertainment. Yeah. You wouldn't get that for 60 or $70 at a national event. Maybe you're sitting, you can't sit with your friends because you didn't buy your tickets on the same day. Yeah. All that yeah. stuff. So yeah. it recreated a lot of what's, what's wonderful, what got me interested in the first place. I really, I really do love the, the nostalgia thing. I, to me, that's, that's where it's at. I, I'm really happy that came along. There are people who say, well, I don't go because the roll bars are square now in the dragsters. They look like funny cars. Or that injector isn't, isn't 1962, you know, Hillborn. And I'm like... What, what fluke of the universe is it that this came back and we get to go watch front engine? That we trailers? have it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Are, yep. you, are you going to wait for roll bar, round roll bars <laughs> to come back? You know what I mean? You can wait another 35 years. Yeah. I love this. I, yeah. I love this thing that's happening. You know? Yeah. And it's really, people don't realize it's a big deal twice a year at Bakersfield, once at Boise. Almost no other track or region can support, support nostalgia. It just doesn't happen. Yeah.
Yeah. But but we're really fortunate to have old tr like a track like Bakersfield, that's been there since '53 or whatever racing, and that spirit of things. And it's yeah. casual and it's more fun. My father before he died. He worked for the post office for 39 years and he said, you know, for about six months after he retired at 55, his buddies would call him up to go play golf and stuff. Then it stopped. He goes, I go to the drag strip where I, yeah, I had this little crappy job, part-time job because my kids were in Catholic school. People come up and ask me for my autograph. I see people that I knew then. What other industry offers you this kind of payoff late in life where you, yeah. you, you see your friends and you can get involved. You can build a car, you can wrench on a car, you can sit in the stands and watch a car, you can build a period tow push vehicle and push them, start them up. Yeah. You could take pictures. I mean, there all these things you could still do. It's like not growing up in a way. Oh, yeah. And my dad used to say, what other business or career offers that, you know, to yeah. people as a living and also as entertainment? It's a lot. You're, where else do you see 85-year-old guys bend on the starting line? <laughs> you yeah. know, and they're, they're screwing with the, the yeah. barrel valve. Yeah. They, that, you know. Who else gets to go back? You can't do that when you're an 80-year-old golfer. You can't do that when you're an 80-year-old track, former track star. This is the one place you could do that. Yeah. And it's accessible, and everybody's glad to have you, and they make a fuss over you. Yeah, they're revered at that time in their life, which is such a great thing. Huge part of my life. Huge yeah. part of my life, the nostalgia thing. Same with the guys building you know, the traditional cars, the kids. Yeah, I, I, I love that. It's nice. There's a place for that, and I'm glad that probably for the rest of my life, however long that is, I'll be able to participate in some way. I'm not. I'm not sure if I was into something else, I could. Yeah. Even some other automotive thing. It, it's not vintage sports car racing where you're not trying to run into each other. They're blowing. You know, they're bombs. They're, there's a bomb between your legs at yeah. 260 miles an hour. That's the real deal. That's yeah. not screwing around. You know, a, a, a vintage race is. Is, is real racing. They're racing. If it wasn't, I don't think I'd be that interested in it, but it's the real deal. Oh, yeah, Everybody's yeah. really serious, but it's fun, and at the end of the day, everybody's friendly and they have a beer together. That doesn't happen in the big show. And, you know, Hot Rod, do you think Hot Rod Deluxe could have come about, or do you think there would have been a need for it? Do you think it was just time that Hot Rod Deluxe happened, or would it not have happened without the nostalgia racing movement and the nostalgia hot rodding movement? I, I don't think so. I don't think if you could go do if you couldn't go do these things today. I yeah. don't think as a history book because historical magazines tend not to do well. Yeah. If you can't get inspired to go do something. Yes. And exactly. when I write a story, I try to make it appeal to the young people. The old guys are going to like it, but raging out. If you could make it like the story about those young guys that's coming up in Hot Rod Deluxe at Bakersfield, these young guys that have the old banger cars. Yeah. I, that, I, the reason I pitched that story is because I thought maybe another teenage kid or a 20-year-old kid will see this and say, you can do this. It doesn't have to be a Brizio car, nothing wrong with that. But there's no entry-level Novas anymore. You try to go buy a Nova, oh. a V8 Nova, you, they're like Corvettes. It's were. a great point. You, it's a great point. A kid can't go buy a $400 car and throw a carburetor on it. You know what I mean? It doesn't. Yeah. It's not possible. Yeah. So how do you start somebody? And these guys showed that we trade, we wheel and deal. The old guys in the Model A Club give us stuff. They say one of the comments he made, the, guy, the head guy made was, almost everything on our cars is something somebody else was going to throw away. It was on the way to the scrapyard. And it was going to be a patch panel because somebody wanted to match original steel. And yeah. I took that dash panel and said, wait a minute, it's got a lot of holes in it. It's rusty, but I can save that. He goes, all of our cars are like that. 
They're, oh, they're put so together great. and it takes five, six, seven years to get on the road. But even a 19 or 18 year old kid with a regular job can, can do this. It is yeah. accessible. If somebody's there to encourage them, inspire them, mm -hmm. give them a place like Bakersfield to come out and see these cars being used. If you don't see anybody driving them, you never, never see it happening. Why would you get interested in that today? There's so many other things. When I was a kid, it was even not even guitars. You're kind of a nerd if you even played an instrument. It was sports and cars. Yeah. And other than that, you were just a dweeb if you didn't have one of those going on. You know what I mean? <laughs> now look at the look at the variety of things to distract a kid without spending any money, just yes. on his phone. Oh yeah, it's all for free. And there's no it's end to it. Free. There's only so many hours of recreation time, and then it, it, there's plenty of things to fill it up. So. To answer your question, I do think that's the reason. It would not work as just pure nostalgia. You've got to show them an old thing that's in the present. It has to be living. And I same yeah. way about subjects. When you interview somebody who's dead, it doesn't have the same appeal as somebody who's alive. A kid today may never meet Isky, but the fact that Ed Iskandarian is still bouncing around at 95 or 96, he might. He, he, he yeah. might read what he says. It's possible. It's yeah. not just exactly. some old dead guy. So I think if you stick with things that are happening today, but make them appeal to a younger, a younger group, even if they're nostalgia, the fact that something's going on, and yes, you can go. You can drive to the drag strip and spend 10 bucks and, and experience this. That's really important, really important to encourage people. And I don't think we'd have that Hot Rod Deluxe, or I don't think it would be anything like it is if it wasn't for these other things that are available. And young people keeping things alive. You know, if a young person just sees a bunch of gray-haired guys, I try to tell the magazine editors that all the time show the people it's not just the car if you've got a 19 year old kid that's doing this show that kid and his cute girlfriend and all that yeah they're sick of seeing seven yeah. year old guys that tells them they can't do this yeah showing them that there's a community that they can join yeah that it's a there's a, a support group <laughs> really exactly you know get on to this before show you get on to the yeah. next thing yeah you know if you don't get them young though if you, like the cigarette companies you know if you don't get them by mm. 13 or 14 you might not have them but if you yeah. get them you'll have them for life well, I think on that note, we uh, want to thank you for being here. This has been fantastic. Fun for me, too. Thanks. Really, really great, man. And uh, thanks for the time. Sure. Thanks for asking. Everybody keep buying print magazines. Well, there you go, folks. Now we're talking another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. We want to thank our dear friend, the great Dave Wallace Jr. Just spectacularly good stuff. I mean, it is just amazing the way he shares his his memories and the story of his life in a way that it, it's it's like watching his his personal film, his little life movie, just kind of roll out in front of you. Uh, it, it's just magical. Um, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Dave. It really was, uh, it was really a ball. Uh, special thanks, as always, to our announcer, Larry Babb, and all the staff here at Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California. Our PR person is Angela Helton with social media management coming from Crystal Hayes. Technical assistance from Eric Curtis, Katie Sloan, and Cole Kuntz. And as always, all Rodcast music is written and performed by me. Special thanks to our archivist and historian, Jim Miller, who's always doing the heavy lifting and keeping us honest. 
The American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Steve and Carol Mamishian for the sole purpose of documenting and preserving the history of hot rodding. Without their generosity and passion for this work, none of this would be possible. So, as always, if you'd like to learn more about the foundation, please hop on over to our website, ahrf.com. You can support us there by checking out our merchandise or simply by making a donation. You can also follow us across all our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, where we'll provide you with daily posts consisting of historic images pulled from the Foundation archives as well as information on future episodes of the Rodcast. So, once again, huge thanks to the great Dave Wallace Jr. And we hope you've enjoyed this episode. We hope you'll join us again next time right here for another great episode of The Rodcast. Thanks for listening to another great episode of The Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.